St. Augustine was perhaps the most famous theologian of the ancient church, and much of Christian theology in the past 1,600 years can in many ways be discussed as clarifications of Augustine's thinking, which sort of makes me wonder, what have I done today? But uh, Augustine, however, was famous in his own time for his pronounced life of debauchery before his conversion. And there is a story that supposedly, I don't know that this story is true, but it is a good sermon illustration. So supposedly one day after he became a Christian, one of Augustine's former mistresses saw him walking down the streets of Milan and called out to him, Augustine. But Augustine kept walking. And so she called to him again, but he still did not respond. And so she chased him down the road and and grabbed him and said, to him, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine responded, Yes, but it is not I. And the purpose of the story is that Augustine realized his massively new identity that he had as a Christian. He was no longer the Augustine that he was before his conversion. And the reason for telling that story now is because Paul emphasized the same point in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. He wanted Christians to understand that being citizens of God's kingdom entails acting like citizens of God's kingdom. There is a cultural ethos that every citizen is supposed to imbibe. But the Corinthians were not so much doing that. So 1 Corinthians, as, as we have worked through it, we've seen that as Paul's pastoral address to a congregation struggling to walk consistently with their faith in chapters 1 to 4, Paul confronted how they had formed divisions by trying to align themselves with various teachers whom they found to be most prestigious rather than cherishing a forthright gospel presentation. And they had also, as chapter 5 addressed, let rampant sexual immorality go unchecked in their midst without enacting church discipline. And already in chapter 6, Paul rebuked them for taking one another to secular courts over issues that they should have handled themselves. And these first six chapters then are about a crisis of authority in the church and Paul's pastoral efforts to reorient these Christians to what Christ's church should be like. And the section before us now follows right upon and really as part of his rebuke against those who were suing one another in secular courts rather than trying to address these issues between them and in the church courts first. So in verses 7 and 8, Paul wrote, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. He pointed out that regardless how they dealt with these issues, they had actually already lost because they had these issues at all. They should be more willing to endure some wrong than to be eager to get what they can from fellow Christians But instead, they actively wrong one another. Paul's further rebuke of this general besetting of unrighteousness indicates that 
the way they have behaved was not consistent with what the Christian church is supposed to be. The main point is God's saving work creates people who are different from the world. God's saving work creates people that are different from the world. We're going to think about this in three points. Culture, characteristics, and change. Culture. These verses open with a rhetorical question that explains why they are defeated just by having these issues among them as the church. So the problem is a defeat for them, verse 9. Uh, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So Paul's point was that this issue was much bigger than some trifling debate, but shows that despite how they had so prioritized amazing rhetoric and theological teaching, they'd forgotten what it means to be a Christian. The issue at stake is not something small and indifferent, but actual participation in God's kingdom. We should be really clear. We should be really clear that this passage is not a warning that true Christians among the Corinthian congregation could lose their citizenship in God's kingdom. We'll get to that as we work forward. Paul's point, as one commentator has argued, was not to describe qualifications for an entrance examination that we would face at heaven's gates, but to compare the habits that in no way belong under God's dominion with those habits that are in accordance with a transformed Christian life that should characterize those who are truly new creations. And so I and many of us in this I'm trying to illustrate this. Yeah, that's where this is going. This is an illustration. <laughs> I and many of us in this blessedly international congregation are not originally from this country. Uh, now, I had to obtain legal right to reside in the United Kingdom. But now, having come to this part of the world legal as a legal resident, once I arrived, I realized there are all sorts of things about life that I need to get used to doing. So I needed to learn to use different terms for things that I had always called something else. Football is something massively different here. Uh, I have to get used to drinking tea, to talking about the weather a lot, and so forth. That style of life, though, is necessary as a member of this culture. And the same is true with the culture of the new creation. When we have the legal right to be there, which we considered this morning, right? We need to start getting used to what that life looks like. So that is what God's kingdom is like as well. Christians do indeed obtain the legal right to reside in God's kingdom a long time before we get used to the way the culture is there. As we have considered, when we take hold of Christ by faith, we are justified, granted entitlement to heaven because Christ justified us. Justification is that passport that 
shows we have entitlement to heaven to heaven because of Christ's work for us. And justification is about our status before God and not about the way that we actually live. So, God makes us citizens of heaven and gives us the right to become the children of God in justification. But, but He does more than that. It's a tremendous blessing. And God blesses us more. He not only gives us right to live in the new creation, He makes us new creations. We have the right to be the new creation, but we need to imbibe its culture. So, as we obtain citizenship in Christ's kingdom, which as Westminster Confession 25.2 says, is the visible church here on earth, we need to assimilate into the culture. Now, I find myself firmly attached to things like baseball and barbecue perhaps more and more because they're so distinctly american and southern even as i have to reside as an immigrant in this country and those sorts of things i hope you'll agree are fine but as a resident of the church of christ's kingdom I have to assimilate to my new home. I need to give up the things that characterize my old kingdom because those things are incompatible with my new home. The culture of the church is to put aside the things of our former lives. That brings us to our second point, characteristics. So the Reformed Faith has long made use of the term pilgrim as a designation for how we live in this world. And and this term is coming back into more and more popular use and it contrasts with those who would think that they can make this world our home and somehow make it Christian in all of its trappings. This sermon is not about church and culture. I've beat that drum enough. Uh, but is about how we are meant, we are meant to be changed people. So in verses 9 and 10, Paul outlined things that the Corinthians' previous allegiances accepted, but were incompatible with being new creations. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We find here a devastating chain of sins, all of them with equal emphasis. I know the one that everybody wants me to bang on about, and I'm not going to do it because it's one among many. But the thing about this section is that Christians cannot believe that we can be saved and never change. That's a massive emphasis right here. God does save wretched, awful people. But God saves us in a twofold way. 
God rescues us from sin's penalties in justification, and He rescues us from sin's power in sanctification. Christ inseparably grants us both benefits by faith, and those who would have rescue without having renewal, as Calvin commented on Romans 8-9, try to rend Christ asunder. It is an attempt to split Christ Himself in pieces if you would get saved and not embrace every effect of salvation. And I think that that raises the issue that this passage is not simply about doing different things, but about loving different things. Sometimes we have to make clear decisions about what we will do despite what we want, but we can pull the roots of unrighteous behavior listed in verses 9 and 10 and, and see more deeply that there was a lack of love for purity. A, a love for other things that they had turned into gods. A, a misplaced love for goods and drink. And a lack of love for fellow people. And the issue I want to raise is that cultural assimilation into God's kingdom and adjusting to what life is supposed to be like in that kingdom entails that we reconsider the things we love. The fine point I want to put on this is that Christians don't simply strive to avoid sin. But we strive to love righteousness. Our, call, our calling as God's people is not simply to make sure we, we don't do a list of bad activities. Our calling is to love to learn what is true, good, and beautiful. Our, so, okay, let me give one example of this. So, Christians cannot continue to be sexually immoral or get drunk. Now, here's the thing. You may not engage in sexual immorality, nor may you go out and and be a drunkard. But when we think harder about that, would you love to watch things that celebrate that? I mean, I realize that there can be good qualities in in a whole host of television programs and movies, but does that outweigh the cost of subjecting yourself to things that you should not love if these things celebrate ungodliness? I'm not talking about if, if there's... Everything has ungodliness in it. I'm talking about things that celebrate it. So probably all my examples, because I'm not hip anymore, are getting outdated. But a couple of years ago, I mean, like, do you love this Game of Thrones stuff? Or the Hangover movies? Because those and many others are not just bad things. They are a celebration of unrighteousness. And you should hate them. Because you should hate things that celebrate ungodliness ungodliness and they love what you should hate christians shouldn't be sexually immoral which includes 
what we do with our eyes on our computers as much as physical activities with another person. Christians shouldn't have idols. And although I seriously doubt that many, if any of you, have some talisman that you worship, would you skip Lord's Day worship to go to a rugby match? You are an idolater, if so. Christians should be faithful to their spouses in act and in heart. And we shouldn't engage in homosexuality. We give our bodies and souls only to the one that you promised God to love in proper marriage. Don't love material so much that you would steal or cheat from it. And the same goes for an accumulation of wealth that subverts generosity. All I've done here is work through this list of characteristics that Paul gives us. And the characteristics of Christians is to learn to love what Christ loves. And that brings us to our third and final point, change. So we've considered a list of characteristics that Paul outlined in verse 10. And the danger here that Paul knew was that Christians often react in two different ways strongly and negatively so they react strongly and negatively in two different ways and that is why we need verse 11 and such were some of you but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the lord jesus christ and by the spirit of our God. Paul stated the motives and the sources to pursue godliness in an ascending list of saving benefits that we have in Christ. They were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified. And this firstly shows that Paul actually didn't, as I claimed before, didn't place conditions on their salvation as if they could lose it. Our, our first need for verse 11 then calms our reaction that all is lost because of our works as if they determine our place in God's kingdom. So the first need for verse 11 is to calm that panic. Paul's point was that they had salvation and acted out of accord with it. They were washed. God had called them to faith. They had been sanctified. Already God had enabled them to die some to sin and live unto righteousness. They had been justified. God made them unshakably citizens of heaven. They carried the passport to the new creation, but acted like they belonged somewhere else. They need to change, lest they prove they were never part of God's kingdom at all. And they also need to remember that this description of godlessness used to describe them. It shouldn't anymore. Like Augustine, if any of our former mistresses, literal or metaphorical, call to us, we should say, 
I'm not that person. The emphasis is on such were some of you, but not anymore. The change is that God has made us new creatures in status and condition. Our our second need for verse 11 puts to rest our reaction against sin and anger and reminds us that we must confront sin, but in love and with the gospel because we used to be and sometimes still are just as wretched. It's clear that these benefits happen in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Christ earned our washing, sanctification, and justification. We are made right with God and able to walk in holiness and renewed to new life only in union with Christ by faith. The Holy Spirit applies this work to us. The late but great theologian John Webster noted that the and is crucial at the end of verse 11. As the Spirit's job is to bring full effectiveness to the perfection of Christ's work by applying it to us. These come to us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the working of the Spirit. The Spirit indwells Christ's people to enable them to live for Christ because Christ lived for them. Christ is alive in His people, which is why they don't obey the flesh, but demonstrate the reality of God's kingdom in our hearts. So, if you're not a Christian, you need to see the beautiful offer that God makes you here. You, indeed, may be terrible and wretched, but so used to be everyone here. God offers to wash, sanctify, and justify you if you would go to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. God would make you new and instate you as a child and citizen of the kingdom of heaven. If you are a Christian, there is the obvious challenge in this text to grow in putting aside the things of our former life. We are supposed to increase in looking like we belong in the culture of God's kingdom. But you shouldn't leave here feeling like that's a burden. Believer, hear the force of Paul's words. Such used to be you. Such were some of you. But you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified. God has irreversibly claimed you as his own and adopted you into his family. Christ has shed his blood to blot out the record of your sin 
has walked the earth to earn your place in the new creation and has risen and ascended to stand in heaven as a pledge to all whom he represents that they will follow him there too. Christian, you are new because God has already achieved all that you need to live this Christian life. He washed you. He sanctified you. He justified you. We can live like we belong to Christ because we do. Let's pray. Father God, it is an amazing privilege and yet also in some ways an overwhelming challenge to be a member of God's kingdom. And so we are thankful for all who believe that you have washed them, that you have sanctified them, that you have justified them that your work of salvation cannot be overturned. And God, we pray that for each one of us here who claim the name of the Lord Jesus, that we would look like that's true. That we would not be a people who profane your name among the nations, but that that people would see us And despite our imperfections, which we know will never go away, that they would still say, their God must be amazing if he would create a people like that. Would you work that here among us for your name's sake? That you might be glorified, that you might be seen as the amazing and majestic God that you are, splendid in holiness and purity, who can impart that to your people, whom you have definitively rescued and will continually save from the power of their sins. Set us free, God. Help us and use us. We do pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.